This is Pastor John here, and we're so glad you're able to join us today. The last time we heard from Pastor Scott, he talked about how worship is transformation. This time, he's going to tell us how worship is meeting. How would we meet? Should we meet? Why do we meet? And what does it mean when we come together? All these questions will be answered in today's service. I hope you'll hang around for just a few minutes after the service, where we can tell you how you can get in touch with us. I look forward to hearing from you. Let's join the service now. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here. Let's go ahead and turn to, in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, two short verses that are very weighty in what they mean for us as we gather here on Sunday mornings to worship our great God. Today, we are going to wrap up our series on worship. We're going to meditate on these very familiar words in Hebrews chapter 10. And so in this third and final message, which is called Worship is Meeting Together, we're going to be reminded that our worship is a very high calling. In fact, worshiping God is the purpose for which God created us. And so our worship is a high calling, and that calling is to proclaim the supremacy and the sufficiency of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We started this little series on worship uh, back in October in Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. These verses uh, reminded us that the very root of worship is conviction. That is, before we can even worship Christ, we've got to be convicted of who He is and of our great need for Him. We can only worship God in spirit and truth only when we believe what He declares about who we are, and that is that we are sinners, and when we understand who He is, He is our Savior, our Lord, and our King, our Redeemer. And so on the heels of that truth, uh, earlier this month, the first Sunday of this month, uh, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we learn that after conviction of that truth comes transformation. We become transformed people. Transformed people whom God expects to be holy people. We are people set apart to worship Him. And so that means that we've got to learn uh, to conform to the image of Christ through faith in Him. And this process takes the rest of our earthly lives here on, on earth as we walk through so many circumstances and temptations and experiences. And so worship begins with this conviction that we need Jesus Christ because only He can save us from the wrath of God. Once convicted, the natural response of the truly saved is that we have a compelling and loving desire to be more like Him. We want to please Him in everything that we do. And so in keeping with that lesson, I hope and pray that during this last week and, and even this whole month uh, since we were in Romans chapter 12, I pray that we have been worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we say and do and think. You know, some of us are worshiping Christ right now as we deal with COVID. We have worshiped the Lord lately as we have grieved the loss of fathers and daughters and other family. We have worshipped as we anticipate upcoming doctor's appointments that maybe we're dreading the results. Are we bringing glory to Christ in these things as we deal with these things? 
We have worshipped as we have navigated issues within our families. We have worshipped God as we have watched our world continue to turn its back on God. We have worshipped God as we have been confronted by the temptations of our own lives. And even as we have repented of our sins. Because that is real worship. You see, true worship involves our whole selves. Every moment of every day every fiber of our being, all of us. But what about our meetings on Sunday morning? What should they look like? Well, since we worship God right now in the reality of a dark and pagan world, not to mention the reality of our own propensity to sin, and even more so, the glorious uh, reality of God who has saved us from His wrath, all of this should cause us to be very deeply and biblically thoughtful about our meetings together. And maybe this is something you haven't thought about in a long time. This is something that I've thought about a lot and prayed about over the last couple of years. And so this is what we're going to do together today in Hebrews chapter 10. We're not going to cover this exhaustively. Uh, we would be here until next Sunday if we were to try to do that. There have been so many books and articles and blogs and, and tomes written about uh, worship that it can make your head spin. But the bottom line in what he, the letter to the Hebrews is telling us here today in these two verses in chapter 10 is that worship is a high calling. And that calling is to proclaim the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as we worship. We're going to examine uh, this high calling in five short lessons. The first lesson is that we should be thoughtful about our meeting together. This should be something that we think about, pray about, study about a lot. Worship should compel us to godliness. That's the second lesson. And the third lesson is that meeting together is the pinnacle of our worship. We worship as individuals, but this gathering here today is the, the earthly pinnacle of our worship. Number four, worship should encourage us to walk faithfully in Christ in anticipation of His return. And number five is really a question. What do we do to worship God together? How do we do worship together in this room? And so allow me to read Hebrews 10, these two verses, 24 and 25, and then we'll go deeper. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord. And let us hear how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, this letter to the Hebrews, we don't know exactly who wrote it. Uh, it's never revealed in the letter. Uh, the, the clearest conclusion that scholars can come up with is that maybe it was some sort of collaboration and quite possibly a collaboration that Paul was involved in. This is a letter that is written to Jewish believers in Rome who are facing persecution and trials for their faith to a degree that's difficult for us to imagine. Their devotion to Christ literally is causing trouble in their lives. And many of them are tempted to return to the old covenant of laws and sacrifices 
which of course is what they were used to, and it was also in the world they lived in a much, much safer option than following hard after Christ. And so the point of this letter is to encourage these Jewish believers to continue in the way of Christ. So the author of Hebrews has set out in this letter to prove to scared and doubting Jews the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus as their Messiah. And so we find the supremacy first in the very opening words of this amazing letter. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hallelujah. And so the author also proclaims the sufficiency of Christ as he moves through this letter. And this is over and against the insufficiency, as, as Mark was talking about earlier, of the Old Testament sacrifices. Those were only a representation of what Christ would truly accomplish for us on the cross. And so in Hebrews 8 verses 1 and 2, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And so from that glorious truth all the way through chapter 10, verse 18, the author explains why this is the case. In fact, all the way to verse 23. Christ not only is supreme over all of creation, but He's also the only high priest who has the authority to forgive sins. And, and as such, He's also the only perfect sacrifice that can atone for our sins once and for all. An atonement that doesn't have to be repeated over and over and over again as in the days of the sacrifices. And so for all of these reasons... The author in verse 23 exhorts the Jews in Rome to hold fast to the promises of our Lord. Why? Because he's already been faithful. He's proven that already, his faithfulness. You see, this is the conviction that the harlot taught us about back in Luke, Luke chapter 7. Since Christ is who he says he is, that truth demands a response from us. And that response, of course, is to be faithful because he's been faithful to us. But it's all summed up in one word, worship. Worship is the proper response to the work and the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that brings us to verse 24 of our passage. And this is where we find our first lesson, that we should be very thoughtful about meeting together. Now the author exhorts in this verse this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Well, the kind of consideration here uh, that the author is uh, having us to consider 
Uh, is, this isn't just a, a passing thought over a frivolous matter. We're not deciding between Chick-fil-A and Panera for lunch. This is serious business. Our consideration, in other words, is the spiritual welfare and faith of our fellow believers. Not to make them famous, not to puff them up, but so that they can learn to live in a way that conforms to the image of Christ, even in very trying circumstances. And so we consider, we consider what? We consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Well, the stirring here has the same sense as sharpening in, 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 that we find in Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: Iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. In other words, uh, where there is godly fellowship and godly counsel, uh, both people are benefited. And this kind of sharpening requires real relationships, real fellowship. The kind where we find fellow believers whom we can open up to and trust and pray with. And ideally, we find those relationships here in the local church. This is God's design. This is part of our worship that, that it is so easy for us to overlook because we can be so, so overwhelmed with life and commuting and busyness and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. We can be so wrapped up in all of those things that we can forget that we need meaningful fellowship. And you know what else? That others need our fellowship too. And this, by the way, is the real disadvantage to those of you who are watching online on YouTube. You're participating in some way, but you know what? You're not going to be here for the fellowship after church. You're not going to benefit from iron sharpening iron we're going to miss you from not being here as well because we want you to sharpen us. So this is why we pray for an end to COVID, isn't it? And I hope and pray that, that uh, you haven't reached the point where you just don't feel like going to church. It's easier to watch on, on your screen. Because we need to be here. We need to be face-to-face with one another. Face-to-face fellowship is part of our worship, a very, very important part of it. And so as we consider how to stir up one another, what are we stirring each other up for? Well, this brings us to our second lesson. Worship should compel us to godliness, to love and good works. The type of love here that the author wants us to be stirred up to is agape love. This is the same sort of sacrificial love with, that, that Christ demonstrated for us. This is a love that we derive from Christ Himself. You see, just as Christ poured Himself out for us, we pour out our lives into the lives of our fellow believers. We pour out our lives for His sake as we come here to worship Him. You see, we're taking a break from, I mean, the rest of the world is off doing their own thing right now. And maybe they're getting a lot of yard work done. Maybe they're, you know, going to a movie or taking a trip. But we're here in the presence of one another to worship the Almighty God. And so we are pouring ourselves out in the same way that Christ has poured out Himself. And so we're also stirred up not only to love, but to good works. Good works are anything that is fruitful in God's eyes. 
The sense here is well-doing, virtuous, and even pious acts. Good works are something we do, in other words, intentionally. We have in mind when we do them to bring glory to Christ. And so our meetings together should compel us to that kind of godly action. Well, in the next verse, verse 20, or next in verse 24, uh, not in the next verse, we're still in verse 24, we see, oh no, it is actually in verse 24. I meant 25, didn't I? Anyway, it doesn't matter. You know where I am. <laughs> the next thing we see is the exhortation to meet together. That meeting together is the pinnacle of our worship here on earth as we, we gather as the ecclesia. That's the Greek word uh, for who we are. We are the called out ones. We're the church. Now Bob Coughlin, you may have heard of him, he's one of the most influential leaders of our time regarding matters of, of uh, modern worship, for lack of a better term. Here's what he has to say about the importance of gathering as the ecclesia, as the called out ones. He says, coming together isn't our initiative. (laughs) We didn't think this up. I love that. We didn't. This is God's design that we meet together. God has called us. God is the one, Coughlin says, who has called us out of the world to rehearse the gospel in his presence for his glory and for our good through the power of his spirit. He goes on to say, after a week when we've been tempted to worship money, relationships, control, sensuality, and ourselves, a call to worship God wakes us up to the fact that we are sojourners and exiles in this world, as it says in 1 Peter 2.11. There is one true God, and that He deserves to be exalted in our minds and hearts and wills, that He calls us together so that we might build each other up, and that's what we're gathered to do. And isn't that exactly what this, these two verses in Hebrews are all about? The effect of our worship together, of exalting God, is that we're built up and encouraged to carry on with our walk with Christ, even when the going gets tough. See, that's our fourth lesson, that worship should encourage us to walk faithfully in Christ in anticipation of His return. This is a powerful message for these Jews who read this for the first time because it was literally dangerous to be a Christian. Between the unbelieving Jews on the one side who hated them and the Roman government uh, who in their ignorance persecuted them, living a Christian life was hard. This reminds me of Some of the heroes of the faith who are currently, right now, this very moment, imprisoned in work camps in North Korea because they are followers of Christ. They have little and nothing to eat sometimes, and there's not even enough shelter for them in these bitter winters. We think the last week was cold. You should go to North Korea, from what I understand. Even though meeting together for them comes at a great risk, they don't neglect to meet. Here's what they do. Two or three will quietly slip away and gather in maybe the latrine. And that becomes their sanctuary. That becomes the place where they bring glory to God. 
where they share scripture with each other. They whisper songs of praise to God so that the guards can't hear them. We can sing as loud as we want to, but they whisper their singing. They pass along words of encouragement to each other to persevere in the faith, to persevere because he who promised is faithful. You see, the reason that they persevere is because they know the faithfulness of God. God has already sent His Son to die for the forgiveness of their sins. So they trust that He will be faithful to return to gather His church into eternal life with Him in the new heaven and earth where there is no prison, where there is no sorrow or sin or hunger or cold. You see, that's the kind of encouragement the author of Hebrews is speaking about. Because God was faithful, He is and because God was faithful, He is faithful right now, and He's going to be faithful in the future. And so that's why our meetings together are so important. We need the testimony of God's Word and the encouragement of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's move on to our fifth and final lesson. How do we do worship together? What exactly should we do when we meet? Well, this has to do with the means of worship, the choices we make about what to do and what not to do during our meetings together in order to bring glory to God, in order to build up and encourage each other as we live as people set apart, as we, as we learn to be the light in the darkness. And so the passage that, that, uh, that we all together read uh, just a few minutes ago gives us a worthy template to follow. As we peek in on the new church who is worshiping after Pentecost. And they devoted themselves in Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. To the breaking of bread, which of course is the Lord's Supper. A, a different version of it than we're familiar with. But the Lord's Supper, all the, all the same. And to the prayers. That's what they devoted themselves to. This is our template for worship. The preaching and teaching of God's Word and actively receiving it is absolutely central to worship. Or to put it another way, it's the very foundation of our worship because uh, and the, and the believers at Pentecost were absolutely devoted to it. They intentionally sought out sound teaching and were like sponges absorbing God's Word. And you know, that's one of the joys of being a member of this congregation is that there are so many sponges in our congregation. And I love that because what that means is that we do sharpen one another. They also devoted themselves to committed fellowship, which is, as we've already seen, is a very important part of our worship. Church for them wasn't a product to be consumed as it is often in today's Christian culture. But they sought out commitment with each other for a good reason, for mutual growth in the Lord, to grow to maturity in Christ, is how Paul puts that in Ephesians. Partaking of the Lord's Supper follows Christ's command, and it affirms their desire and ours to be united with Christ in His suffering and in His death. And prayer? Prayer is simply what Christians do, isn't it? Somebody a long time ago said that prayer is the soul's breathing. It's also the church's breathing. 
And so all of these are the basic elements of Christian worship. All of this has got to rise up from the faithful preaching of the Word of God because how in the world will we know how to worship unless we have a firm foundation about who God is and what He's done for us? That's why some people end up worshiping other things is because they don't have that firm foundation. That's why so many churches are falling away when, as they fall away from the preaching of the Word. They end up worshiping themselves, idolizing their feelings and, and their status in life and so on. And God becomes a big teddy bear in the sky who grants their wishes. You see, preaching and teaching are always the central focus. Everything else in worship gatherings is subject to the Word of God. Somebody say, Amen. And that's, that's exactly what makes our meetings together far more than an event that we attend, well, most Sundays, right? As elders and pastors, furthermore, we're not, we're not producing a product for you to consume. Worship is something we all participate in. We are all here worshiping the Almighty God. And so as pastors and elders, we're not just talking heads or YouTube influencers, although we're on YouTube, simply so that we can reach the world with the gospel. We're not just peddlers of our opinions. Instead, to the very best of our ability, fallible as we are, we are here to proclaim the truth of God for the people of God and part of your calling as worshipers is to hold us accountable to that. Here's what Paul said to his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. You see, this is an incredibly awesome responsibility. To be the mouthpiece of God. This is a fearful burden that Pastor John and I bear every time we stand here at this sacred desk. We feel that weight tremendously. In part because we love the Lord and in part because we love you. And we want you to know and understand God's truth. And so even though we are as human to the core as you are, as much as possible, we're not relying on our own understanding. But we're doing our best to convey what God is saying through His Word, just as you are sitting here right now striving to understand it. That's our goal because we know that nothing that we can say has any worth or value except that God has declared it. Only His Word has the power to transform. Only His Word gives us the foundation for worship. Because His Word reveals who God is. And it reveals His great plan of redemption. It reveals His Son. He has lately spoken through His Son. As the beginning of Hebrews says. His Word is the only thing that can change us and transform us and conform us to the image of Christ. And so, I think maybe by now we're seeing how extremely important our worship together is. 
because it has a real impact on our lives. Worship is formative. What we decide to do and not to do is going to have an impact on your faith for better or for worse, depending on how well we celebrate the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ as we worship. Now, over the past 2,000 years, people have fought many battles and some of them literally bloody wars over what worship entails. I'm not here this morning to fight those battles. What I am interested in is whether our worship services here at WBF celebrate the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ our Lord. As I mentioned earlier, I've been studying worship off and on for several years now. And I have become convinced that while our worship services are good and godly, it's possible that we could exalt our great God all the more if if we were willing to make a few changes. Over 50 years ago, many evangelical and non-denominational churches began to abandon what they considered to be formal liturgies in favor of more singing. That's the basic model we follow here at WBF. And there's nothing wrong with our singing. Singing is a wonderful thing. And so we sing a a worship set of three to five songs, sing them together, and then we have a sermon. And several years ago, we added the catechism into the mix. But you see, what drove that change decades ago from what we would consider to be a more liturgical service, even though we have a liturgy, was a belief that liturgy and even hymns were dead and useless and boring. The belief was that they no longer spoke to the people of God, even though they speak the truth of God. The good ones, anyway. Some of that change is natural, of course, especially when it comes to music. Styles change. And since music is a language, we're going to speak the language, sing the language that we know and understand. But I'll tell you what, the importance of theologically sound words to that music remains a constant at WBF, and as far as I'm concerned, it always will. We choose our songs very carefully. But the point the evangelical church has missed as a whole over the last 50 years is that we all have a liturgy, whether it's sung or spoken. Ours is a very simple one. Other churches have much more complex ones, read from, from prayer books and, and uh, hymn books. But you know what, brothers and sisters? If our liturgy is biblical, it isn't a problem, even if it's one of those complex ones, whether it's formal or informal. In fact, working in spoken liturgy back into our worship services, I believe, will be a very tremendous blessing during our worship together. You see, the problem with those churches back then wasn't the liturgy. It wasn't the hymns that they sang. It was the fact that many of those churches rejected the person and work of Jesus Christ, which those liturgies proclaimed. And I've been in churches like that before. By rote, they recite great truths without believing them. It's a travesty. It's so sad to hear. 
And without the faithful preaching of God's Word, which is in many churches has become less and less common, that's what happens. And sermons become object lessons, and the singing becomes feel-good, and worship becomes about ourselves. But here's the, the truth that we have to admit to ourselves. Without that solid foundation of biblical preaching, of sound doctrine and theology, our singing could become the same thing to us. Our liturgy could become empty and in vain. But I am firm in my conviction that our worship services are good and pleasing to God. The reason that I can say that so confidently is because I know you. I know you. You guys are convicted of the truth of the gospel. I see that in the way that you live your lives. I see how your lives are being transformed by Christ. In other words, you've got the heart of worship that God is looking for. But since we have that heart of worship of our great God, doesn't that mean that we also want to learn to become better worshipers? We're not here for a passive experience. We're here to participate. We're here because this is a worship service, an act of praise and thanksgiving on our part where we want to proclaim the worthiness of God and His salvation for His glory and for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ and if possible as a witness to a lost and broken world. And so to do that, God has given us so many choices that we could make in order to celebrate the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ even more. And I think we have become in some ways so set in our ways that we just don't even realize this. We don't even realize what the possibilities are necessarily. But as we realize these things, as we learn how to to celebrate Christ and to express who He is and His, His gospel in perhaps new and different ways, we're going to be blessed all the more. And isn't that the beautiful thing about God and His worship? Worship is meant for God, but it always blesses us. Everything that God has for us blesses us, is good for us. And so let me just suggest some ways that we can build each other up even more than we do now. And ways that we can encourage perseverance in our walk with the Lord during our worship. For instance, we could read a psalm as a call to worship, either responsively or, or by a pastor or elder. The psalms are this massive book of 150 songs full of all the joys and laments of life, full of, of worship. They're worship songs. And that being said, we can also learn to sing the psalms as well. Many Reformed churches still do today. And I tell you what, there's nothing like singing Scripture. God has given us the language of music to help us to remember His words. And that's a great way of learning these glorious, glorious songs that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They weren't written by any man or woman. They were written by God Himself. Another thing we can do is regularly read together the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. 
These are ancient documents that were written long ago uh, that, that declare the things that we believe. In the early church, they felt the need to distinguish themselves from people who believed in heresies and who, who didn't understand the Trinity or the divinity of Christ. And so they wrote these two creeds, and there are others that have been written even more recently. Uh, they were write these in order that we might stand up as one and declare who God is, declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you've ever done that with a group of believers in Christ, you know how powerful a testimony that is, not only to your own heart, but everyone in the room and anybody who's listening. And so talk about encouragement as we're reminded of the great truths of the gospel. But you know, I grew up in a church that wasn't strong in preaching the Word of God. And here's the other value of reciting what we believe as a whole together. It was the creeds that taught me as a kid what the Bible said. I didn't learn that from the pulpit. I didn't learn that from the Sunday school class. Sometimes, though, we can think of a creed and, and object to the repetition as rote and dry. It doesn't have any purpose or meaning. Maybe we have some bad associations from other denominations where the liturgy was meant to be something that saved us, which of course is not biblical. But at any rate, sometimes we're a little afraid of repetition. But you know what? We repeat our songs a lot, don't we? How else do we memorize them? <laughs> we, we memorize them by repeating them. And so just as we know from the songs that we sing every Sunday morning, repetition of the truth of God cements it into our mind. Another thing we can do is read not only uh, the Psalms together, but the magnificent creedal hymns that we find elsewhere in God's Word. And I just want you to listen to this. This is from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Think, of, think about what would happen if this, this and other passages like it became a part of our worship service. Listen to this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. You see, Christ is our worship leader. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. You see, this is the kind of truth that we proclaim to one another on Sunday mornings. This is what we ought to be saying and singing to each other. And anything that helps us do that is going to turn our hearts more and more Godward in our walk. And I believe as well that we should weekly confess our sins in this body. We need to acknowledge to one another that we are sinners. And we also need to acknowledge before our Creator that we have rebelled against Him and that we need His salvation. 
And so we also need to hear, not from a priest, not from a pastor or an elder, but from the Word of God, the absolution of our sins. In other words, that our sins have been forgiven. They've been washed away. Your sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can pray together. We can pray together. John Calvin called prayer the chief part of worship. John Wesley, who was certainly no Calvinist, he was the founder of Methodism, he would agree wholeheartedly with that. John Wesley would get up every morning long before dawn and pray for hours before breakfast. E.M. Bounds, who was a 19th century preacher in the Methodist Episcopal Church South, uh, declared this, and this is powerful stuff. When the church fails to pray, God's cause decays and evil of every kind prevails. In other words, God works through the prayers of His people. And when they fail Him, at this point, decline and deadness ensue. Praying saints are God's agents for carrying on His saving and providential work on earth. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to make more time in our services to pray, to really pray, not just the opening prayer, but we need to pray for one another, for our community, for our nation, for our world. We need to pray for the lost. We need to pray for healing. We need to pray that God will open the hearts of those who don't know Him and clear away the hardness of our own hearts. Prayer is a key element of our worship. But you know, whatever we do in worship, whatever we do in worship should constantly retell the story of the gospel. Why? to encourage believers and as a testimony to unbelievers. To stir us up to love and to good works. Our worship rehearses what we're going to be doing for all of eternity someday. And that is to continually proclaim the worthiness of Almighty God. Our worship on earth is a rehearsal for that day as well as it is a witness to the world of that eternal hope for which we are so ready to give an account. And so just imagine this scene with me for a moment. This is the reality of where you and I are going. Revelation 5, beginning in verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads, and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. 
That's what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. This is the God whom we worship. The God who is worthy. The Lamb who is slain. Who is so worthy of our worship and our praise. And so our worship, brothers and sisters, we need to know this. Our worship is the most important thing we do every week. It is a very high calling. Our worship proclaims the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in unison with all of those living creatures that we don't understand and all of those elders and angels and every saint who has ever lived and who will ever live. And so as we learn to become better worshipers, I believe that God is going to build us up so that we can proclaim his greatness in this community because he indeed is so, so worthy. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to worship you. And thank you for this body that you have given to us, this body of believers who seeks hard after you and teach us, Lord, to be better worshipers. Teach us, Lord, to stir each other up to love and good works. Teach us to encourage each other to persevere in the faith. Teach us, Lord, to love you more and more and more every time we get together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we close, I have some very bittersweet news to share with you. Over the last couple of years, Leslie and I have been praying mightily about where God wants us and what our future is. We've been asking God whether we should stay here or move on to somewhere else, and if so, where else would that be? And God's given us an answer, and that is that we are moving on. God is leading us elsewhere. We've had a strong desire to be close to Leslie's family. There's a strong desire that we share. And we also have a sense that God has something important for us to do. And we also have a very strong sense that God isn't finished with WBF. But in the meantime, we're going to be moving to Lynchburg. It's 30 minutes away from where Leslie's mother lives. It's close to her brother and many other friends and family that we know down there. And God is going to lead us into ministry. We don't know yet what it is. This is one of those times in life where God says go and you go before you know what he's going to do. And so this decision has been ours as we have submitted ourselves to the Lord and to his will. And I want you all to know how deeply we love this church, how deeply we love you, the friendships and the relationships that we have 
built are priceless to us. And so it's hard to go. (laughs) It's hard to go. But God is calling. God is calling. And so I'm going to be here in the pulpit one more time in the latter part of February. And we're going to be moving in the first few days of March. So our world is changing very quickly. And I know yours will too. But all to God's glory. And we just need to trust in Him every step of the way. Amen? Amen. You know, when Scott shared this with um, us, God immediately confirmed it in our hearts that this is what the Holy Spirit is doing, not just with Scott and Leslie, but with, with us as a church. We don't know what that means. God hasn't pulled back the curtain fully, but we feel that he has poised us on the threshold of something remarkable and incredible that's yet to be revealed. We're confident in that. We're delighted for for you, Scott. We're delighted for you, Leslie. We know this is what God is doing. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, Father God, we think of the patriarchs. You were the God of Abraham, and you called him out of Ur. You were the God that preserved Isaac, Lord, and and caused Israel to be secure in Egypt. You are the God that is called Moses and led Israel out of Egypt. Father, you are the God of the apostles. We think of Peter and Andrew, who you called, and they left their nets. We think of Paul, who you called on the road, Lord, and his life turned. And Father, we know that's what you are doing at this moment in the lives of Scott and Leslie and the life of this church. And Father, we yield to you and your Holy Spirit. We ask for your guidance. You, we ask that you would confirm in our hearts the direction you would have us go. And we commit this to you, Lord. We know that you are doing something here, not just here at WBF, but here in Warrington and here in Virginia and here in our nation. And now, Lord, we turn to you and hope and trust and faith and all that you're leading us to. Thank you, dear Lord, in Jesus' name. And let's close with this benediction from... Ephesians 3.
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, whether you're here or there, go in peace. Pastor John here again. I want to thank you for spending some time with us. If you're interested in supporting our ministry financially, you can give online at wbfva.org, clicking on the giving section, or you can send us a check to Warrington Bible Fellowship, 46 Winchester Street, Warrington, Virginia, 20186. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your prayer requests. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back again next week.